1: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we hear about upcoming changes to Aurora Police and Fire Departments in the wake of Elijah McLean's death.
2: First, creating specific guidance for police officers on how to exercise discretion during interactions with the community where there could be perceived or actual bias.
1: And we learn about an experimental nuclear power project in Wyoming. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. The city of Aurora is on the brink of approving a plan to reform its police and fire departments. The effort follows indictments of officers and paramedics in the death of Elijah McLean and an investigation that found a pattern of racial bias and unnecessary uses of excessive force. Joining us to talk about this is KUNC investigative reporter Michael Deuana. Hey, Michael. Hi, Henry. You reported on these reforms as they were introduced earlier this week and uh, also on the chapters of this ongoing saga all the way back to the death of Elijah McLean. And this is kind of an opportunity to go more in-depth with a process that's going to be unfolding here soon.
2: Let's get listeners up to speed with the sweeping measures that are going to take shape in the months and (laughs) probably the years ahead. Uh, First, the investigation you mentioned was issued by State Attorney General Phil Weiser in September, and it was scathing, uncovering abuses of power and bias across the board. Uh, For instance, uh, police used force against people of color Almost 2.5 times more often than white people, and uh, people of color were more likely to be stopped by police in the first place and to be arrested. Uh, The report was filled with examples, uh, some that have led to lawsuits, and it's Against this backdrop, that officials have agreed to reforms, including new policies and training for officers, Aurora Police Chief Vanessa Wilson told reporters this week that she is fully committed to the process.
0: A lot of things have come to light, a lot of things that we're not proud of, a lot of things that I had to deal with via terminations or even arresting some of our own. But I also think that we missed the boat when we don't focus on the good things that are happening in this city. And I need you to believe in this agency. And we are committed to make sure that we do everything.
1: Well, I'm hearing, at least on the surface level there, some commitment from the chief. Not just the chief, but other officials like the city manager. Tell us more about what specifically is being proposed.
2: Wilson was standing alongside Attorney General Weiser, who outlined them this week. First, creating specific guidance for police officers on how to exercise discretion during interactions with the community where there could be perceived or actual bias. Second, improving the use of force, creating policies and training that will ensure it's only done when necessary and appropriate, and there's not unnecessary escalation of encounters with community members. He also touched on hiring practices with the goal of ensuring that both police and fire agencies become more reflective of the community they serve. There will also be extensive data tracking related to police interactions with the public.
1: And so what is the timeline for all of this? And and then how is all
2: of it going to be enforced? Well, the next step is for the city council to sign off on the plan. That is expected to happen. As for the mechanism for enforcement, it's a legal agreement called a consent decree, and it has provisions for an independent monitor in the years ahead who will oversee the process. The decree also gives the attorney general the ability to turn to a judge if for some reason city officials refuse to comply. But there was no indication that would happen. Here's uh, Chief Wilson again.
0: This is going to take time. Uh, We have a timeline that we need to roll out. But we're committed to making these changes, and I promise you that we'll be transparent every step of the way and allow you to know exactly what's going on in the Aurora Police Department.
1: What kind of reactions have you heard regarding this consent decree?
2: Community activists are cautiously optimistic. They plan to hold Wilson to her words regarding transparency and, of course, A lot of people are watching. The momentum for all of this began in the summer of 2020, when Black Lives Matter demonstrators from all over the state gathered outside the Capitol in Denver and chanted Elijah McClain's name over and over. His story had largely been forgotten until that moment, which came almost a year after his death, a year after Aurora police stopped the 23-year-old black massage therapist as he walked home from the store on the grounds that he looked sketchy. Officers placed him in a chokehold, pinned him down and handcuffed him. Then paramedics sedated him with ketamine, a powerful drug. And at the hospital later, he was pronounced brain dead and eventually taken off life support.
1: You did numerous investigations into ketamine for KUNC with Ray Solomon last year. Is ketamine part of all of this stuff happening in
2: Aurora now? Yes, uh, ketamine is part of the process, but it's a moot point for the moment as Aurora Fire Rescue stopped using it during our investigations that involved not just them, but agencies around northern Colorado. And after a state law was passed to rein in its use to sedate people in police incidents, uh, state health officials have temporarily halted its use. And so
1: what about Elijah McLean's mom, uh, Shanine McLean?
2: She's watching the case against three officers and two Aurora fire rescue paramedics unfold. If you recall, over the summer, a grand jury handed down a 32 count indictment, including charges of manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide. Meanwhile, another case, a civil lawsuit, is in the final stages of settlement with Elijah McLean's family and could cost the city millions, so much that it could be the largest in state history. That's according to a couple of local news organizations citing their own sources. Neither the city of Aurora nor McLean's attorneys have confirmed the exact amount yet. And my sources say that the settlement process is ongoing, so we don't really know what's going to happen yet. To Shanine McLean, did
1: she have anything to say about this reform effort and the consent decree?
2: No, uh, not to me directly, but through her attorneys, she released a statement thanking the community for its support, love and commitment to ensuring Elijah's death, quote, would lead to meaningful reform. Uh, She raised Elijah as a single mom and his death has left an enormous void in her life. Nothing can change that. uh, But she hopes that the reforms will spare other parents the kind of heartache that she lives with.
1: Well, immense changes in Aurora and something to keep an eye on in the coming months. Michael DeOanna is KUNC's investigative reporter. Thanks for joining us, Michael. You're welcome. After we recorded that interview, we learned the amount of the settlement to end the wrongful death lawsuit filed by Elijah McLean's family, $15 million. The next step is a hearing in the near future to determine how the funds will be distributed between Shanine McLean, Elijah's mom, and his biological father. A small city in southwestern Wyoming will be home to a Bill Gates-backed experimental nuclear power project near a coal-fired power plant that's scheduled to close in 2025. Officials with the Washington-based Terra Power said this week they will build the natrium plant in Kemmerer. Proponents of the sodium-cooled reactor say it would perform better, be safer, and cost less than traditional nuclear power. But others are skeptical. Judy Fays of Inside Climate News has more.
0: Please give them another round of applause. Thank you very much. More than 100 people gathered in the heart of Kemmerer late last summer to celebrate James Cash Penny. Once he started his retail chain, coal miners didn't have to buy everything from their employers. Then the idea spread across America. Penny's spirit of innovation inspired city leaders as Kemmerer competed against three other Wyoming communities this year to host an experimental nuclear reactor. They wanted to save jobs as their coal-fired power plants retire early.
2: We realize that's coming, but we want to mitigate uh, anything, uh, anywhere that we can to make our town not dry up and blow away.
0: That's Mayor Bill Tech, who was scooping barbecue onto buns for the crowd. He blames the energy transition for coal's decline. And that's a big deal in Wyoming, the nation's biggest coal producer.
2: And, you know, when it comes to decarbonization, we're we're not stupid here. We're hicks, but, you know, we're we're not stupid.
0: Tech and other city leaders learned Tuesday they've been chosen as the location for a $4 billion electricity generating reactor. The high-profile project was proposed by Bill Gates in partnership with Rocky Mountain Power. They hope Gates' company, TerraPower, can do what Penny did 120 years ago, turn this remote coal town on Wyoming's western high plains into a springboard for innovation. This is going to be extremely exciting for the state of Wyoming, uh, for Rocky
2: Mountain Power and our customers and in particular for the city of Kemmer and for the Mountain Power plant and our employees there.
0: That's Rocky Mountain Power's CEO Gary Huggeveen speaking at Tuesday's announcement.
3: And we're going to need to decarbonize, and as we go down that path, we see the Natrium project as being incredibly valuable to our customers.
0: Natrium would generate 345 megawatts of carbon-free energy and help cut the company's greenhouse gas emissions. That's a big reason why Gates' company and Huggeveen's are both pushing for these new reactors. But sodium-cool reactors like natrium are unproven, and they have their critics. Some question whether the new designs are as safe, reliable, and affordable, as advocates say. Nobody's ever been able to make this particular design work to produce electricity economically and reliably. Allison McFarlane led the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission in the Obama administration. Over $100 billion has been spent perfecting sodium-cooled reactors since the federal government began experimenting with them in Arco, Idaho 70 years ago. But the technology hasn't panned out commercially as water-cooled reactors have. This is a hair-on-fire moment. McFarland says the world needs climate solutions now and can't wait for Natrium to be tested and licensed. We don't have 10 or 20 years. In Kemmerer, Optimism remains high, even though Rocky Mountain Power plans to close the nearby coal-fired power plant in 2025. Shofay Shermer is with the Utility Workers Union of America in Wyoming, and she says workers generally support the reactor experiment. They're watching to see whether state and federal regulators agree that Natrium can be safely operated. In the big picture, if there's a way to do it and protect jobs, we're all for it. It's also a potential safety net for some of the 106 workers at Kemmerer's coal-fired power plant. There's still a lot of uncertainty, and the workers look forward to having an opportunity to stay where they live, you know, the place that they clearly love that they've been here this long. Federal matching funds for Bill Gates's reactor require that the plant is up and running in 2028. I'm Judy Fays for Inside Climate News and the Mountain West News Bureau.
1: KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You can find more stories at our website, KUNC.org. Listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. How much money should oil and gas producers be required to set aside for cleaning up retired well sites? That question will be front and center at the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission this winter as the agency crafts rules governing financial assurances from the oil and gas industry. The issue comes down to what happens when producers go bankrupt. If they haven't put aside enough money to properly plug and abandon their operations, those wells become orphaned, meaning that Colorado taxpayers end up footing the entire cost of cleanup. All of this agency rulemaking isn't the splashiest stuff, but it could have big consequences. And to help us understand what those consequences might be, we're speaking with Andrew Forkus-Goodmanson, deputy director of Logic, the League of Oil and Gas Impacted Coloradans. Andrew, welcome to Colorado Edition.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: So let's start with some basics. What does it mean for a well to become orphaned? How does that actually happen?
3: So an orphan well is a well that's been abandoned to the state of Colorado. And it has become the responsibility of the Colorado oil and gas conservation Commission to clean up typically it happens, as you said, when an operator goes bankrupt, for example, if the well is no longer productive. uh, The COGCC is stretched pretty thin when it comes to enforcement and monitoring so it's possible for wells to just sort of slip through the cracks and. uh, For the operator to essentially just walk away from that operation and leave it as is hopefully shut off in some form or another um but uh, it can b- basically just be the end result of the, a poorly planned for end of life of an oil and gas well. Um, the industry claims that they're super low producing and therefore a super low risk when it comes to emissions in public health, but the actual evidence indicates otherwise. You'll see video footage of methane emissions from these low producing sites taken by a very expensive and high tech camera that looks at Um, methane emissions through infrared and you can see emissions coming off of many, many of these sites. And when taken in the aggregate, there are 10, 20, 30,000 of these low producing sites that are all emitting a little bit of methane. It's obviously a catastrophe for our state's greenhouse gas emissions reductions plans. It's harmful for the people who are breathing that air who happen to live next door. And there's also potential for groundwater contamination from these low producing wells or inactive wells. that, that we believe is a serious risk. And again, individually, each of these wells is maybe a small risk, but there are 20,000 of them. And collectively, the risk is huge. We need to start addressing it now.
1: And then, Andrew, what does that process of actually plugging the well look like? How does that happen?
3: The plugging process is actually just sort of shorthand for plugging, abandonment, and reclamation. So the, the COGCC will either, with its own staff or through a contractor, remove all the surface equipment, remove all the old tanks, look for spills that may have happened, which is super common unfortunately, and remediate the surface and then actually pump cement down the the hole of the well bore and essentially fill it up to make sure that the producing section of the subsurface where the hydrocarbons are is separated from both the the actual surface and any groundwater that may potentially be useful.
1: And so how much does it cost to properly plug Uh, and abandon a well?
3: That's a great question, and one that has been the subject of a lot of really rich debate at the Colorado and Gas Conservation Commission over the last six to eight months. Um, The statewide average thus far is about $92,500, but I personally believe, and the evidence seems to suggest, that that's a pretty gross underestimation of the actual cost of plugging and abandoning more modern wells, Um, so it could be anywhere from you know, the $92,000 that the COGCC has found, or uh, if you look at research done by an organization called Carbon Tracker, it could be as much as several hundred thousand dollars
1: per well. With that background now, let's move over to financial assurances, which I guess is this sort of mechanism that the COGCC might be considering What are financial assurances in the oil and gas industry? And then why should we be paying attention to this?
3: So financial assurance functions essentially like a security deposit. Uh, For those of you who are renting, that shouldn't be um, too hard to imagine. Um, It's basically the money that an operator has set aside in various forms, sometimes through what's called a surety bond, sometimes through actual cash held in a bank account that they've set aside as a guarantee that the well will be plugged and abandoned at the end of life. So if an operator doesn't plug and abandon the well, the bond exists so that the state can claim the bond or the cash to do the plugging abandoning work without um, using taxpayer dollars. And so the financial assurance is basically that promise to pay.
1: What is the current state of Colorado's financial assurances rules? Are there any on the book or would this be a completely new venture?
3: There are rules on the books. And unfortunately, the state of them is that they are, um, trying to find a, a nice way to say it, but I think grossly inadequate is the only way um, that would do the problem justice. Um, so going back a question, you asked how much does it cost to plug and abandon a well? Even at the low end, we're estimating $92,000 per well. Unfortunately, the current rules allow operators to post what are called blanket bonds which is a bond that covers the entirety of their operations in the state, in some cases up to thousands of wells. And that blanket bond amount is only a hundred thousand dollars, barely the cost of a single wells cleanup cost. And there are some operators using a single hundred thousand dollar blanket bond to cover hundreds or thousands of wells in the state. And so that's how we find ourselves in this massive hole where the state only has a little over two hundred thousand dollars in bonds. or Sorry, two hundred million dollars in bonds on hand but a potential plug-in cost of $8 billion. <laughs> so we're short by about not $7.8 billion or so, <laughs> depending on how you do the math.
1: Can you give us some historical context to some of the regulations that got us to this point? I mean, it sounds like a bad situation for the COGCC to be in.
3: Uh, yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. It is a bad situation for the COGCC to be in. And unfortunately, it's the result of the way the Colorado Oil and Gas Cons- Conservation Commission operated Pre SB 19181, that was the bill that changed the mission of the commission from one that fosters oil and gas development to one that regulates it to protect public health and safety. And so, pre SB 181, the COGCC felt that it was its duty to make sure that oil and gas operations were able to function. And regulation sort of took a backseat to that. And so the industry claimed that bonding was expensive, that it would be a waste of money, they didn't need to save for the end of life of their operations because apparently they thought these wells were going to produce forever, and so the COGCC adopted financial assurance rules that were extremely lenient, and that has led to this problem where the the industry has never really been forced to reckon with the true cost of cleaning up their operations, they've just been able to sort of pass that accounting down the line, hoping that they, I guess, hoping that they would never have to actually plug these wells.
1: If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Andrew Forkus Goodmanson, the deputy director of Logic, the League of Oil and Gas Impacted Coloradans, about the ongoing financial assurances rulemaking at the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission. Andrew, so I understand that you have put together like a mapping project of these wells that we're talking about in Colorado. What does that project show? And then what did you learn putting all this together? When
3: we started this financial assurance rulemaking, we were asking ourselves a lot of the same questions that you've been asking me. How many orphan wells are there? How many wells are there likely to be orphaned? Where are they? Um, is the problem you know, confined to a certain geographic area? Is it statewide, et cetera? So we were able to, with the help of a lot of other organizations, gather data from the COGCC on the location and production history of every single active well in the state, basically every unplugged well in the state. There are about 52,000 of them, depending on which day you take the statistics, and we decided to put all those wells on a map and color code them by their average daily production, because in our estimation, the lower the average daily production is, the le- obviously the less revenue that well is generating. And the more likely it is that that operator is going to have a difficult time paying for the plugging abandonment costs. So we view those lower producing wells as more likely to become orphans, riskier to the state. So we put them all on a map and it turns out the problem is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's really terrifying there are something like half of the wells in the state producing below a threshold that was at one point deemed so uneconomic that they had to be exempt from paying severance taxes so half of the wells in the state are very low producing and very risky to the state and pose a risk of becoming orphaned if anything happens to the oil and gas industry and prices go down for an extended period of time
1: you know this may be a broad question but what are you hoping to achieve with this map project
3: we're hoping to illustrate the extent and scope of the problem and the sort of ubiquitous nature of the low producing well in Colorado. I think a lot of people in Colorado have this picture of the oil and gas industry in this state as these giant mega pads that are you know producing you know gushers of oil or whatever. And really that's the extremely, extremely small minority of the total number of wells in the state, the far, far more common well is a very low producing well that's producing, you know, maybe a barrel or two per day scattered across the state, across the eastern plains, on the west slope, in the far southwest, and those wells are owned in no small part by very, very small operators with minimal amounts of revenue and from their own mouths no real savings plan for the end of life of these wells. Our goals are several fold. We want to show the extent of the problem, the severity of the problem, and why from a public health and environment perspective we need to deal with it right now.
1: How do you see this information specifically impacting the financial assurance rulemaking that's coming up?
3: We're hopeful that the COGCC will look at this map and their own data and and realize what we realize. The problem is is really big and it's right here staring us in the face. And we need the COGCC to try to solve the problem with open eyes, without avoiding the fact that the vast majority of wells in the state are super low producing and very risky, and adopting a a new set of rules that will require the industry to do what they should have been doing all along. And that is realistically planning for the end of life of their operations by forcing them to pay a surety bond or a cash bond that actually covers the real cost of cleanup not some you know, sort of estimated blanket bond that is wildly too low for the real cost because if they don't Colorado taxpayers are going to end up footing the bill when these companies walk away, which we know historically is happening. We're actually kind of already footing the bill, the new infrastructure bill that just passed has orphaned well cleanup dollars in it, so your taxpayer dollars are already going to be spent on orphan wells what we need to do is make sure that the COGCC is holding operators accountable for cleaning up their mess and not the other way around.
1: Aside from the changes you're hoping to see, um, what do you think we can expect to see in this rulemaking process going forward? Can you kind of explain what happens next uh, for the COGCC?
3: Yeah, so we're going to see a new draft of the rules on December 7th. That'll be a really exciting day. Hopefully the new draft will take into account a lot of information that the Commission has received from organizations like Logic and other environmental organizations and will tackle these issues head on. Um, and then they'll, they'll do that tackling in a hearing in late January and early February. And that'll be a great opportunity for the public to be engaged as well. There'll be opportunities for public comment, for, for more input from people who live next to these old wells or who are frankly just sick and tired of more industry subsidies, which is essentially what these inadequate bonds are.
1: Andrew Forkus-Goodmanson is deputy director of Logic, the League of Oil and Gas-Impacted Coloradans. Andrew, thanks for speaking with us today.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: That's our show for today. Next week on Colorado Edition, we explore recent changes to an opioid anti-stigma campaign in Colorado, Lift the Label. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Ryan Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.